All right, you can go ahead and be seated as we open God's word together. In the beginning, God created the universe out of nothing. And on one of those planets in that vast universe, he fashioned a garden with the intention of allowing his most precious of all of creation, humans, to live and to thrive there. After making the first humans, Adam and Eve, in his own image, he put them in charge of all of creation. And in doing so, he set up this beautiful place where their relationship could thrive with one another and with God. However, every single one of us knows that in order for love to be meaningful, it has to be voluntary. And so God gave Adam and Eve the option of choosing him, of making a choice to, to love him or not to love him, of taking him seriously or not taking him seriously. And it didn't take long for the two of them to cross over that line. And in the beginning pages of Scripture, suddenly we find Adam and Eve hiding from the God who loved them so deeply and had given them so much that they had willingly chose in the type of slavery for themselves for which they could never escape from on their own. As their tragic story continued to unravel, God gave them a spark of hope. He came to the woman and said that there will be a descendant in your line that will come and will appear and to restore, to deliver, and to liberate your fallen human tree. A couple hundred years later, eventually, we're introduced to the granddaddy of the Jewish faith, someone from this, this family tree. We know him as Abraham. And as far as we can tell, Abraham was just a pagan, a wealthy pagan living out his heathen life. When one day, God comes to him and makes him an offer. He comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I have a deal to make with you. If you're willing to give up everything and to follow me, then I will bless you. I'll give you a son and that son will become a nation and that nation will bless the entire world. Well, he didn't have to say that twice to Abraham. Abraham says yes, and then he proceeds to royally mess it up. That him and his wife Sarah thought that they could speed up the nation-building process by Abraham sleeping with, with one of his servants and having a child that way. It was a terrible idea. But the good news is that God is faithful, and he keeps his end of the bargain even when we do not. And against all biological odds, Sarah gets pregnant in her old age. And as that baby grows up, that child, that son, has two sons. And out of those two sons, one of those sons has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the foundation of the nation that God had promised to Abraham. A few years later, a famine begins to strike the land. And this, these 12 sons have now grown really into 12 tribes, numbering about 70. And because of the famine, they travel to Egypt in, in order to find relief, in order to find food. And after a few years of, of living there in Egypt, when their, when their political connections began to disappear, they went from welcome guests to slaves, to indentured slaves, for the next 400 years. And for the next 400 years, the, the Hebrew people, these, these tribes, would grow from 70 to numbering over 2 million. And for 400 years, that they would cry out every night to a God that they didn't even know existed. They didn't even, weren't even sure if he existed anymore, but they would cry out to him for a way to leave, a, a way to part, a way to make an exodus. And after 400 years of, of listening to the people cry out, God hears. After 400 years of silence, God raises up a leader named, named Moses. And Moses, with the power of God behind him, goes into the courts of Pharaoh, and he goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, you let my people go. And Pharaoh looks at him and he says, not a chance, man. Like, I got an empire to run, and it's not going to run itself unless I have the cheap slave labor of the Hebrew people. 
And you can believe this or not, but God takes exception to be told, being told no by really anyone. And after a series of horrifying plagues that make the coronavirus look like the sniffles, all of Egypt is in shambles. Every deity is, is mocked. Their crops are gone. Their livestock are dead. People are sick. Their economy is broken. And Moses comes to Pharaoh one last time, and he walks into the courts, and he looks at Pharaoh, and again he says, Pharaoh, you let my people go. And Pharaoh does the unimaginable. Pharaoh relents, and he lets the, peop the Hebrew people walk away free. He, he sets them free from their slavery. He, he lets them leave. He lets them depart. They just go. This story to every single one of us is known as the Exodus account, the Exodus story. It's been made into blockbuster movies. It's, it's been made into TV shows and musical. Books have been written about it. And for us, there isn't a more powerful symbol of being delivered from a hopeless situation into a life of meaningful purpose than the Exodus story. And while many of us look at it probably as an acute Old Testament story, in doing so, Christians and non-Christians alike, we miss the significance of this story in Jesus' life, and even more so, consequently, miss the significance of the Exodus account in our own lives today. These past eight weeks, we have been in a series where we've been walking through the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, just know that the Gospel of Luke is one of the four accounts of Jesus' life and story. The other three are Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke is the fourth one. And the whole premise of, these, of this series over these last eight weeks has simply been to look and to consider the life of Jesus, to look at his teachings, to, to be impacted and captivated by his love so that you can decide for yourself whether Jesus is worth following in your own life. And we just simply believe here at Crossroads that the best way that we can do that is to simply to investigate the story to open the book and to see who Jesus is and what he was about and, and where he was going and what he was doing in his life. And so where we find ourselves over the last couple of weeks is peering into what Luke describes as the most pivotal, pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. That up until this point, everything leads. All of the stories, the 40-day fast, the miracle healings, the feedings of thousands out of a little boy's adventure lunchbox, the raising a little girl from the dead, all of the teachings, the sermon on the plains, the parables of the kingdom of God, that even last week when we looked at, at Jesus bringing this, the whole of his disciples to the red light district of Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus reveals to them, for the first time, in a very clear way, that, that he is the messianic king and that he intends to set up his rule and his reign, but not in the way that we would imagine. That the way that he's going to set up his rule and his reign is by dying, by becoming the suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah had spoken about some 700 years prior. All of this in Luke has led up to this point in this moment in Luke chapter 9, where for a moment the curtains of heaven are pulled back for us and we get to see God in all of his glory on display for us. The way that Luke shares this story or records the story for us is in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. He says it this way. Now about eight days after these sayings, that's eight days after the Caesarea Philippi moment, he took with him Peter and John and James and he went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. We call this story, if you're familiar with church, the transfiguration moment. Now, let me tell you kind of what's going on here. Last week, if you were with us, 
we saw how Jesus took the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. And he took them to this place that has this grand pagan temple. And behind the temple is this cliff that has all of these altars built to the pagan gods. And under the cliff ran a stream that the people believed was the literal gates of hell. In every real world sense, that this was the representation of major world religions. And Jesus takes his disciples to, to the foot of this mountain, to this cliff where this pagan temple is at. And he looks at the disciples and he simply asks them a question. He says to them, who do the crowd say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And the disciples immediately, they start peppering with, with answers and they start naming off some of the greats of Israel's history. And they start comparing to them. them and, and as all of this is happening, Jesus kind of hits the pause button and he turns the question from who do the people say that I am? And he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, with thousands of years of Israel's expectation on his shoulder, stands up and says, Jesus, we believe, man, that you are the Savior, that you are the Messiah, that you are the promised descendant of Genesis chapter 3, given to Eve. That's who we believe that you are. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you're right. You're right. And then he does the most fascinating thing. He, he says these words to him in verse 27, 927. After Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now the sum that Jesus is referring to here is the disciples, and specifically the three that we have mentioned here, John, James, and Peter. Luke tells us that eight days after the Caesarea Philippi moment, that Jesus takes these three guys up with him to the top of a mountain that we call Mount Hermon. They pick their way through the pathless incline and the weather-beaten rock to a quiet place near the top where they can simply rest and pray. And after climbing to the top of Mount Hermon, they must have felt like they were halfway to heaven, thousands of miles above, uh, thousands of feet above sea level. And for the first time in a long time, there are no people. There are no crowds. There is no controversy in this moment, just blue skies and the sweet breeze. And as Jesus wanders off, the disciples' eyes grow heavy and they drift off to sleep. And in this moment, as Jesus is by himself on the top of Mount Hermon, he had to know that his fate was closing in on him. That at this point in the story, the hounds of hell have been released. And Jesus fully knows that as he comes down the mountain, dark days are ahead for him. That suffering awaits him. And as he feels life closing in around him, he does what any of us would do. He turns and he begins to pray. And heaven answers in the most amazing way. The rays come and the disciples begin to awaken. They rub the sleep out of their eyes and standing before them is the beaming silhouette of Jesus. The way that Luke describes it for us is like this. He says that Jesus was like lightning. Matthew, one of the other gospel writers, he says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Mark, one of the other gospel writers, says that Jesus was, was white clothes that had been bleached, right? Great gospel writer needs a little help with his descriptions. Nevertheless, right, that the disciples are there and they're completely bewildered by what's happening. They're completely bewildered and they jump to their feet and they're seeing Jesus in all of his glory that will be his in the kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden it's like whoosh, Elijah shows up, and then whoosh, Moses shows up. Now, just to give you perspective, Moses has been dead for 1,400 years. Elijah's been dead for, for 900 years. But these are two men who, who knew the wilderness. These are two men who had endured suffering. 
These are two men who knew what rejection felt like with the people that they were called to lead. And we cannot miss the significance of this moment in light of the Old Testament. That you have Jesus proclaimed over and over again to us through the scriptures as the fulfillment of all of the law and in all of the prophets, standing between the greatest lawgiver in Moses and the greatest prophet in Elijah. This is an amazing scene. And the real miracle here, the real miracle here is not that for a moment that we get to see the glory of Jesus. The real miracle is that for nine chapters, Jesus' glory has been hidden underneath the veil of humanity. And as the hounds of hell are released upon Jesus, the Father sends Moses and Elijah in to talk to Jesus, to be filled by them, to be encouraged by them, to be strengthened by them for what lies ahead. Matthew and Mark, the two other gospel writers, they just say that, that Elijah and Moses showed up. But Luke actually tells us what they were talking about. Luke actually gives us a hint of, of what their conversation was all about. And he gives us the hint in the Greek word that we translate here, departure. You ready for it? In the Greek, departure is the word exodus. It's the word exodus. Look, Moses and Elijah appear in their glory, and they're speaking to Jesus about his departure, his exodus that he's about to embark upon as he accomplishes or he approaches Jerusalem. And the use of this word here is not incidental, that this is everything. What Moses and Elijah represent is, is the entirety of the Old Testament. They represent everything historically when it comes spiritually speaking up until this point. They represent all of time. That at this point, it's as if on top of this mountain, all of heaven, all of time, all of history has shown up to watch Jesus descend upon Jerusalem. That this is everything that the nation of Israel has been building to. That this is the promise of Genesis chapter 3. That this is the blessing of Abraham. That this is the great exodus. That this is the theme of all of scripture. That God would lead his people. He would lead his people on an exodus, freeing us from the slavery when it comes to our damaging decisions and into the freedom of God's grace and God's peace. Now, if you're at all unfamiliar with the Bible, these damaging decisions the Bible calls sin. The Bible calls sin. And the Bible not only calls these damaging decisions sin, but according to the Bible, the reality that the Bible paints for us, the picture that it paints for us, is that not only do we have sin in our lives, but we're actually slaves to sin. We are slaves to our sin. And whether you grew up in the church or whether this is your first time in the church, you, you might be wondering, well, what does it exactly mean to be a slave to sin? What, like, what does that look like? Why does it matter? Well, let me try to explain it to you in this way. About a decade ago or so, Doug, Pastor Chris, and myself we did a book club through C.S. Lewis, some of C.S. Lewis's books and his writings. If you're unfamiliar with C.S. Lewis, he's one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Um, he's, just, he's just really amazing. And that one summer, we read seven of C.S. Lewis's books. If you've never read a C.S. Lewis book, I'm just going to give you a recommendation. Go out and pick up his little book called The Great Divorce, all right? It's a great story. It'll change your life. It'll change the way that you view heaven, all right? You can pick it up, read it. It's worth your time. Well, during that summer, what we did is we would take about three weeks to read one of C.S. Lewis's books, and then we would meet at this pub called Baker Street. 
And the reason that we met at a pub is because there's a little known history fact that C.S. Lewis met with a guy named J.R. Tolkien, the writer of Lord of the Rings, and a few other guys weekly at a pub to discuss their writings and their faith. And so naturally, we just thought we should do the same. And so we sat down every week and we would discuss the books of C.S. Lewis. And one of the books that we read was The Abolition of Man. It's a little book that C.S. Lewis wrote. And toward the end of that book, in my copy, Lewis has all of these sayings with different world religions to show us that when it comes to the major world religions, regardless of which religion you pick, that when it comes to the major world religions, what religion asks of you, what religion demands of you when it comes to your behavior, there's absolute, almost complete uniformity like almost total consensus that when you look at the major world religions, look at anyone that you want to, Christianity, uh, Islam, Buddhism, whatever it is, when you look at what, re what religion requires of you, major world religion requires of you, almost there's complete uniformity. There's things like we're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to break our promises. We're not supposed to rob people. We're not supposed to kill people. In fact, we're supposed to treat people with respect. That we're supposed to live with justice and, and with equality. That we're supposed to follow the golden rule. That with our possessions, we're to be generous. Listen, every major world religion, every world religion, everybody understands that this is the way that we're supposed to live. But when we look at the world, we don't see that, do we? And the reason that we don't see it is because we don't live that way. We don't live that way. And the main reason for all the misery that we experience in the world is because we don't live the way that we're supposed to live. And so here's my question for you. What is it about the human heart that we can know exactly what we're supposed to do? We even know the consequences, that the consequence is misery if we don't do it. And yet we choose not to behave the way that we should. And not just one time, but like over and over and over again. It doesn't matter what government, whether it's, whether it's conservative or liberal. It doesn't matter if it's a monarch or communism. It doesn't matter if it's republic or democrat. It doesn't matter what therapies or, or what trends or what philosophies. They all come and go, and we still continue to do the same things. We know what to do. We know the consequences of not doing it is misery for ourselves and for the people that we love. And yet... We continue to do those same things. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? Well, when it comes to the Bible, the explanation is that the human heart is not just sinful, but beyond that, that we are slaves to sin. It's why we continue to do the same thing, the same sins, the same bad decisions over and over and over again. And the Bible tells us that, that sin is not just an action. Hear me. That sin is not just an action, but it's actually a power. And like any power, it can enslave you. So let me put it this way to you. A sinful action is a power. And every sinful action is a destruct destructive pattern that's unleashed on yourself and on the world around you. Now, we don't like to think about sin that way, but that's the way sin works. That when we sin with our minds, it is withering our, our rationality. That's what it's doing. That when we sin with our hearts and our emotions, it is drying up those emotions. When we sin with our will, it is, it is decaying our willpower. That sin is the suicidal action of the self against itself. That's what sin is. The suicidal action 
of, of itself, of suicide, of, of, this, of this action of itself against itself. And listen, when it comes to sin, sin is an enslaving power. And it destroys your ability to live freely, to have anyone, any genuine sense, any genuine sense of all, of purpose and meaning in this life. That sin is an enslaving power, just like in the Exodus account, Pharaoh is an enslaving power. Listen, in the Exodus account, the Hebrew people, they are slaves in Egypt. And through the goodness of God and the leadership of, of Moses, the Hebrew people were led to no longer be captives. They were no longer slaves politically. They were no longer slaves socially. They were no longer slaves economically. Like they were free. Now this is huge because what Luke is doing, we can't lose sight of this. What Luke is intentionally doing in this moment is that he's setting up Jesus as the new Moses. And Jesus is leading his new Israel, which we call the church, He's leading his new Israel into freedom and out from under the oppressive hand of sin in all of its life-sucking forms. Just like Moses did with Israel under Pharaoh, Jesus does with all people from under sin. That he leads the way to freedom. Like this is an amazing moment in Scripture. Like this is everything that Scripture is pointing to in this moment. It's remarkable. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they finally became fully awake, they saw the glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, take note of that, like the show's over, right? Peter said to Jesus, Master, and everybody turns and looks at Peter. And he says, it's good that we're here. <laughs> All right, show of hands wherever you're at, whether you're watching online, in-house, Fort Lupton, wherever you're at, show of hands. How many of you have ever had said something dumb? Yeah, yeah. And then how many of you, knowing that you said something dumb, said something dumber to try to cover it up? Yeah. And then how many of you had it recorded in Scripture forever? <laughs> right? That's what's going on here. That's what's happening with Peter. Like, at this point, I don't even know if anybody noticed the fisherman in the corner. Right? Peter stands up, and the whole show's about to end, and he's like, Master! And everybody looks at him, and he's like, I just, I just want you to know, it's really good that we're here. You know, and I imagine like John and James are like slinking off in the background like, bro, you are on your own. And then he follows it up with this. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, as if like Jesus forgot to make reservations at the Holiday Inn. You know, and then I love this. The Bible covers for him. Look what it says next. And not knowing what he said. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Luke's like, look, he said it. He was clueless. We had to record it. We quoted him. There it is, right? Like, like he didn't know what he was doing. And uh, it's a humorous scene, but I get it. I get it. Because this is the first time that Peter's ever seen Jesus in all of his glory. First time. What would you say? What would you do standing face to face with Jesus in all of his glory for the first time? Verse 34. And as he was saying these things, in other words, as he was stumbling around, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. That on this mountain, on this day, the disciples see Jesus in all of his glory. Like they had never seen him before. And I imagine for the disciples, because of the story that follows, that immediately their minds went to the fast track of their own glory. 
that their minds are, are dizzy with thoughts of greatness. And yet they failed to understand that the road of glory went through the tunnel of suffering and that soon Jesus would invite them in to that space with him. That this is where the transfiguration fits. That it's quite literally the light at the end of the tunnel. A glimpse of glory on the other side of this world in which we live in. It's this moment where the joy is set before Jesus that gives him the strength and the encouragement to go down the mountain and to face the suffering, ultimately the cross that lies before him in order to lead all of us on the exodus. See, this is the story of the great exodus. In Adam, our first parents, we've all sinned. We've all made those destructive decisions, and because we're slaves to that sin, we continue to do it over and over and over again. And because of that sin, it has separated you from your intended purpose, your intended relationship with God, that you're a slave to it. But the good news of the gospel is that God loves you too much to leave you there. He loves you too much to leave you there. And so he turned to his son, in whom he was well pleased, and he said, Jesus, go get him. Go get him. Lead the exodus to the promised land. Bring freedom. Give hope. This is the message of Jesus. And the truth of today is that he has come to rescue you. That he has come to rescue you. And the only question, the only question before you as we read these scriptures today is will you choose to join the great exodus? Or will you be content allowing your soul to wither away in its slavery? God says the choice is yours. Because we all know the only way that love is meaningful is if it's voluntary. And so God gives you the choice. Will you join the exodus? Will you find your freedom? Will you find hope? Or will you allow your soul to wither under the weight of slavery? That as we wrap up this great season in Luke, today you can join the great exodus and you can find freedom by trusting in Jesus. That almost every week we put a number up on the screen. And if God is whispering to you today, if God is speaking to your soul, if you have questions about what does it look like to follow Jesus, we want to walk with you in that journey. We want to help you in that journey. And so very easily, you can just simply text Jesus to the number 720-513-1933. You can take that easy step. We have people ready to talk to you, ready to walk with you of what it means to find your freedom in this world. Would you pray with me, Father? Lord, the story is so powerful. And Lord, so often we lose sight, Lord, of the significance of it, even in our own lives. Lord, that the exodus was, was that great moment, Lord, of Israel's deliverance from Pharaoh. Lord, and it was just a foreshadow of what your son ultimately came to do for every single one of us, to free us from the bondage of sin, to free us from being slaves, to live with meaning and purpose. Lord, given a second chance to choose not sin, but to choose you to say, I love you, to say, I'll follow you, to say, I'm willing to give everything up in order to have you in my life. 
your, your promise of freedom, your promise of deliverance, Lord, begins in this life now and ultimately, Lord, we find that true freedom in heaven with you. And so, Lord, I thank you for, for the curtains to be pulled back in these few short verses. Lord, where we get to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Lord, where we get to see your glory and, Lord, be reminded time and time again, Lord, that your glory is also our glory as we believe in you. And so, Lord, for those who do not yet believe, Lord, who you're whispering to, Lord, I pray that you would help move them just in the simple direction to make a text. We do it every day. We send texts every day, Lord. Lord, this one could change their entire life. And so I pray, Lord, that they would take that step. For those of us who are believers, God, sometimes we forget the freedom that we have in you. And Lord, as Paul says, we, we still act like slaves. Like we go back and we put the chains back on. But Lord, you've called us to live free. And so, Lord, I pray that we would find our purpose in our freedom. Lord, that you would constantly remind us of your goodness and your love. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.